following sermon is brought to you by Genuine, the college ministry of Coggan Avenue Baptist Church. More information about our ministry is available at www.cogginchurch.org forward slash university. All right, if you've got your Bibles, open them up to James chapter, chapter 2. It's where we're going to be starting in verse 14. A couple of things about um, a couple of things here about the book of James uh, that we want you guys to know know about. Here's some groundwork. James is actually written, we think, by the half brother of of Jesus. All right, so the author of the book of James is actually the half brother of Jesus who started out as an unbeliever. Okay, we did not be, uh, that did not believe that Jesus, his half brother, was was the Messiah that that was promised to come. At one point in the Gospels, it even records an account where Jesus' family comes to where he is preaching and teaching, and they're trying to pick him up and take him home because because they think he's kind of crazy. Okay, so I don't I don't know how many of you uh, could do this. I couldn't, but uh, could could get your sibling to think that you're deity. All right, all right, like that's just not going to happen inside of my family. That's not going to happen. My brother's not going to think that about me. I'm not going to think that about my my brother. But here, in the author of the book of James is the half brother of Jesus who went from an unbeliever and is now a believer and, and is also the leader at, in the Jerusalem church. Okay, so he's now become a believer. He's grown in his faith. He's now leading the Jerusalem church, and so he pins this book of James. It's wisdom literature. Zach talked about this last, last week. It's wisdom literature that's meant to challenge the way that you think so that you change the way that you're living. So James talks, it's, it's an extremely practical book. If you're a brand new believer where you're trying to grow in your faith, James is one of the first books that's great to go to read because it's going to talk a lot about how you're thinking and what you're believing that's supposed to be fleshed out in the way that you live. And as wisdom, wisdom literature, living in wisdom simply means this. It's living in the wisdom of God by imitating Christ, which is to love God and to love others. It wants you to imitate Jesus in the way that you love God and you love other people. So the theme of the entire book, essentially the theme of the entire book of James is this, that faith changes us. Genuine, real, alive, saving faith changes you, changes you, okay? So, uh, let me, uh, let me read this, all right? Let's read this together, starting in James 2, verse 14. And we're going to go down and read through verse, verse 26. Let's read this, and then we'll pray, and we'll get started. This is what James writes. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, Well, you have faith, and I have works, but show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. But even the demons believe that, and they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works 
is useless. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Or a better translation of verse 24 might be, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith that is alone. So we're going to talk about that because there may already be some things going off inside of your head when you read here in verse 24. Well, doesn't Paul say that we're saved apart from works by faith alone? And here James is saying, well, you're not saved by uh, by faith, you're saved by, by, by works. We're going to talk about that here in just a second. Verse 25. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. All right, let's pray. And we're going to unpack a few things, a few things out of here. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much. Um. For getting everyone kind of kind of through the weekend and uh, and homecoming's over now and Lord I, I pray tonight even tonight as students go back and um, and they kind of get a chance to rest and kind of gear up for for the week that's coming and finish the semester well Lord thanks for tonight uh, Dad thanks for bringing us together for giving us your word and Lord I just pray tonight that you would help me um, preach and teach. This passage well, so that we understand some things and are even challenged inside of our faith, Lord, for the Jesus follower in here tonight. I pray that there's an encouragement and a challenge in their faith to to evaluate their faith and, and to make sure that they are growing and wrestling and they are they are loving you well. And from that foundation of loving you and being loved by you, that it is beginning to to shape and alter and transform the way that they are living their life. Lord, I want to see that happen in my life and in the lives of my brothers and sisters here that, um, that are Jesus followers. But Lord, I also pray tonight, because James does this inside of this passage. Lord, it is my prayer tonight that if, there is, that, that if there is someone here who has a false sense of assurance of their salvation, Lord, that they are claiming to be one thing when in fact they are not that even tonight you would use this passage to expose, um, Lord, maybe a fake faith inside of them that you would, um, that you would reveal maybe in a way that they've never seen it before. Their need for you, and Lord, that they would, for the for the very first time, if it's necessary, God, that they would believe in Jesus and they would repent of their sin, and that they would they would find their faith rooted. Um, in, in your son and in his work. So Lord, I'm asking for those things tonight and I pray these things in Jesus' name. Okay, now listen, before we get into this passage, there's a couple of things that, that I want to say. And the first one is simply this. If you're taking notes, here's the first thing that I want you to write down. Faith alone saves you, okay? Faith alone saves you. It is the consistent witness of scripture from start to finish that faith alone in the finished and accomplished work of Jesus Christ is what puts you in a right relationship with 
with God, okay? Faith alone does this. So, so when I pray for, for you guys and when I preach here on, on Sunday nights or whenever, one, some of the things that I'm hoping for is that you will know and beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are fully forgiven, you are deeply loved, and that you are affectionately liked by the God of the universe because of your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, okay? That God is not just, if you're Jesus follower in here, if you have, if you be, have believed in Jesus and repented of your sin, that God's not just putting up with you, Okay? That he loves you, he has forgiven you, he likes you, and not just some future version of you. It's not one of those things where like, man, when you get your act together, then I'll really start. That, that's not how God works. That's not how I work with my, with my kids, all right? I, they just went Halloween, trick-or-treating. They don't walk in, and I don't say things like, dude, I'm really going to love you if you give me all your candy, all right? But if you don't, daddy's going to hold back some love for you. That's not how this works. Maybe how I want it to work if they have Tootsie Rolls, but that's not how this thing works, all right? It's like I love my kids not because of what I get from them, all right? Like, like I pay for everything for them. We provide, my wife and I, we provide everything for them, all right? We, we have to do so many things. I don't love them because of what I get from them. I love them because they're mine. They're mine, all right? And um, and, and as we love, love them the way, like that, they are loving us, all right? And, and, and their, their little lives are beginning to be transformed. So listen, you are fully forgiven, deeply loved, and affectionately liked by the God of the universe, by your faith in Jesus alone. And there is peace and there is delight in knowing that the creator, God, loves you, has forgiven you, and likes you um, and by your faith has adopted you as a son and daughter of the king, all right? So you are saved by faith alone. Now, this is really hard for a few people to kind of get. It's really hard for, now, now track with me here, okay? This is really hard for a few people to get inside of scripture. And, and three categories that are hard for this concept, I'm saved by grace through faith alone, not of anything that I can do or I have or that I can offer back to God. It's by faith alone in the finished work of Jesus Christ. This is really hard for rich people to get, okay? Jesus at one point when he's talking about money even says this, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into heaven because a lot of rich people don't think they need anything, okay? They are unaware of their need because if they need it, they just pay the money and they go and get it. And you can buy enough toys to mask the hollowness of your life. You can buy enough toys to do that. So, so the Bible talks about it's hard for rich people to see their need for a savior because they can provide a lot of times not even just stuff for, for themselves, but if, they, if they're even kind of generous, they can provide things for other people. All right, so, so it's hard for rich people because they don't think they need anything. But listen, the Bible also says this, it's hard for religious people they think they know everything. This is what's happening with the Pharisees. They think they know how to do eternal life. This way, this way. Jesus comes, begins to explain something better, and, and religious people want to look at their religion and, and maybe knock off their to-do list and say, no, no, I mean, I don't need Jesus. Look, look at what I'm doing here. 
Like, I'm going to church, I'm, I'm reading my Bible, I'm giving money to the poor, I'm keeping, I'm keeping all of the laws, okay? But like Zach pointed out, out last week, you, you may say, look, I'm not having an affair on my wife, I'm not cheating. Yeah, bro, but you're killing people. Like, Dexter's your name, if you've ever, never mind. Um, like, like, yeah, you may be doing this, but you're also doing this thing. And, and, and so, so religious people, it's really hard for religious people because they begin to look around and think they're righteous based on the unrighteousness of other people that they see. You can always find someone, their righteousness is based on the unrighteousness of other people. They can look around and find people and say, well, at least I'm not like Chad, all right? Or, hey, at least I, and, and if that doesn't work, then our go-tos are always like, well, dude, at least I'm not like Hitler. Like, I haven't killed millions of, millions of Jews, all right? You can always find some, but when, the, but when the standard is Jesus, okay? So it's hard for rich people. It's hard for religious people. Now, listen to me. Now, listen to me closely on this last one, okay? It's hard for rich people because they don't think they need anything. It's hard for religious people because they think they know everything, and it's hard for moral people because they just don't think they're that bad. Maybe I've just said that. You know, we can always base our morality on someone else. So there's, there's people that begin to think, well, I'm moral. And my morality, and at that point, you have to understand that you are, you are engaging with God in a, in a type of morality and justice system that says, well, I'm going to weigh my good and I'm going to weigh my bad. And as long as my good stuff outweighs my bad stuff, I just got to make sure I'm more moral than I'm immoral. But man, that leads to all kinds of issues. Namely, first, that your salvation is still based upon you and what you can do. And the Bible is very clear that even your righteousness is as filthy rags before the king. Secondly, how would you ever know that you've done enough? You will spend your entire life in fear, wondering and hoping that at the end of your life, when you stand before the judge of all the universe, that you've done just enough to outweigh. And the reality will be, when you stand before the judge, you will not have. will not have. So... So listen, uh, James is dealing with this issue of, of rich people, religious people, moral people, but the consistent testimony of Scripture is that riches, religion, and morality, listen, will not save you. Riches, religion, and morality will not save you, and they do not make you acceptable in the eyes of God. And furthermore, just because you don't deny God doesn't mean that you love and trust Him. Some people just want to say, well, I don't deny Him. Okay, but do you love and trust Him? Well, no, but I don't deny him. But just because you don't deny him does not mean that you love and trust him. So listen, James's point, all right, and what James is trying to get to here is that while faith alone saves us, it's a faith of a certain kind, okay? So faith alone saves you, but it's faith of a certain kind. It is a faith that begins to transform you from the inside out. Faith that saves transforms where there is no transformation, all right, in your affections to love God and love others, where there is no transformation. Listen, there is no saving faith. All right, so this begins to get worked out. All that James is going to talk about here is he begins to connect works and faith. He is not saying work so that you will be saved. That's not what he's saying, all right? What he's saying is 
you are saved, and out of that salvation and that faith and that love for God and others, now work. Works are the inevitable outcome and the outflow of a real, alive, saving faith. Warren Wiersbe had this quote at the very end. Travis, can you go? Because I'll just say this at the start. It's at the very end. Warren Wiersbe has a quote, and I think this is a great quote that Warren Wiersbe says. He says this, no man can come to Christ by faith and remain the same any more than he can come into contact with a bolt of lightning and remain the same. All right? Like, I've never been struck by lightning, but I'm pretty sure I would never be the same after being struck by lightning, all right? At a basic level, storms would scare me. My wife was almost struck by lightning. Uh, she used to have a horse, you know, and and, um, uh, and she recounts a story one time being out in a storm, riding, and she's by a tree. Lightning strikes the tree, throws her almost off of her, off of her horse. To this day, my wife is afraid of storms. It starts lightning and thundering. All right, and she gets a little nervous, like, hey, should we get the kids in the bathroom and hunker down and get, like, the, the mattress? I'm like, babe, it's, it's like a little thunder. I, I know. All right, I'm like, okay, okay, love. Listen, you can't come into contact with the person and work of Christ and remain the same anymore that you can come into contact with a freight train and look the same. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen, all right? So listen, saving faith produces change in one's life, thoughts, desires, your actions, doesn't just look real on the outside, but it's rooted in this inward reality that begins to be bore out inside of one's life. Which means what James is asking you and I to do inside of this passage, now remember this, he's a leader inside of the church, and he's writing to the church. He's writing to the church here. So, so his goal is not to make you doubt your faith. All right, if, if you're a Christian here, and, and, and listen, I know there's some believers, my freshman year at Howard Payne, I, I felt like I, I constantly walked this line questioning whether or not I was really saved. Like in passages, when I'd come across passages like this in James, they used to kind of scare me. You know, like, which, James's point isn't necessarily to make you doubt your faith. His point is to get you to evaluate your faith. All right, even Paul talks about at the end of 2 Corinthians when he talks about um, evaluating one's faith, testing one's faith to see if you're really actually in the faith or, or not. His point isn't to get you to, to doubt or to live in fear. His point is merely to get you to evaluate and ask yourself, what kind of faith do I have? What kind of faith do I have? Because a faith without works is three things, all right? Three things, and here's, let me give them to you real, really quickly. Can you go back to that first one? Faith without works. He's going to say three things here. Let me give them to you quickly. Faith without works is dead. Look at verses 14 through 17. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him, all right? This is a rhetorical question that James is asking because the answer that we see inside of this passage is no, no. If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So he's asking again, what good is this kind of faith? Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is 
dead, all right? So what does dead mean here? When, when James uses this word dead, keep in mind here, he is not talking about an immature versus a mature faith. That's not what he's talking about. He, he is not here talking about a nominal faith versus an authentic faith. That's not what he's talking about here. When James says here faith, he is declaring that one either has faith that saves or they do not. And then he uses this illustration of someone claiming to be a Christian that sees a brother or a sister in need. So someone who's in the family of faith and they don't just see it, but they see it. They understand that there is need, and the need that James is pointing out here isn't, isn't a need where, where they only have, um, you know, a heavy sweatshirt instead of a, instead of a heavy jacket, or, or, or they're wearing, I don't, I don't know, Wranglers instead of, I don't know what popular jeans are, anyone with the diamond-crusted crosses on the back, whatever, what? Um, whatever. Th- this isn't one of those things. He, he's talking about you see someone who it's going to be 28 degrees tonight is in shorts and a, and a torn up t-shirt, hasn't eaten in a few days, and you're looking at me like, hey, bro, you, you see the need, they see, they know, and they can meet the need, and they look and they say, man, you should really get a jacket. It's going to be cold out here tonight, man. And what, man, go get yourself something to eat. Get something warm in your body tonight. Maybe if you get a meal and you get, you get a heavy jacket, you're going to be good. Be well, brother. Be well. God bless you. And they turn around and they walk away. And, and his point is, what good is that kind of faith? What good is that kind of faith? It's, it's, not, it's not good for the person that is in need. And it's not good for the one that claims to have it and sees the need and does nothing. And does nothing about it. And does nothing about it. 1 John 3, 17 through 18, John John writes and says this, but if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Jesus says this exact same thing in Matthew chapter 25. Look at what Jesus says here. He's talking about the final judgment, okay? Matthew 25 is a chapter in the Gospels where Jesus is speaking about the final judgment. And he says, at the final judgment, men and women will stand before him and he will begin to separate men and women. Men and women, um, those that belong to him and those that do not belong to him. And then he talks about one of the things that's going to be used as proof that they had faith. And look at what he says here in 40 through 45. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not, uh, not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. So listen, faith without works, what James said, faith without works is dead. Here's the point. Faith in one's heart is evident by the fruit in one's life. Faith in one's heart is evident by the fruit 
in one's life. Jesus also said this in Matthew chapter 7 where he starts talking about apple trees and, and fruit trees and other kinds of things. He says, listen, by their fruit you will recognize them. Faith that is evidence in one's heart is evident by the fruit in one's life. So is, is, is your life producing fruit that sees the least of these, those in need, and is moved with compassion, love for God, and love for others to begin to meet those needs. Listen, I am not saying perfectly, all right? When you come to faith in Christ, it's not about perfection, but a new direction that God's taking you in. I'm not saying you do this thing perfectly, but I'm saying when you see need, especially in those of faith, there is something inside of you because of love for God and love for others. And, and, and what Zach even talked about last week, seeing that Imago day inside of, inside of the least and some of the most vulnerable, that moves you to compassion to meet the need, to meet the need. Because faith without works is, the first thing he's going to say is dead. Here's the second thing that he's going to say, all right? Faith without works is demonic. It's demonic. Let's unpack this in 18 and 19, okay? Look at verse 18 and 19. He says, but someone will say, so here he's, he's interjecting um, someone who's going to argue, like someone who may argue. Maybe this is someone who was present in the church that James was writing to, and I don't know, maybe James had like a passive-aggressive streak, and he's like, well, maybe someone will say John, and let's, let's, talk, let's have a conversation with John here, okay? Okay. Um, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one and you do well. But even the demons believe that and they shudder. And they shudder. All right, so listen. Faith without works is not only dead, but faith apart from, from works that, that spring from a heart of faith and love for God and love for others, he's saying here is demonic. It's, it's demonic. James anticipates this objection. You have faith and I have works. So James, this is all James says, prove it. Prove it. You say you have faith, prove it. How will you prove your faith if there are no works to show what your faith is really doing in your life? Prove it. And maybe the objection comes, well, why do I have to prove it? Listen, if you had the faith like I had, you would just know it, and you wouldn't have to. Right? It's kind of this intellectual kind of, it's kind of like getting the chair and being like, okay, I'm setting the chair here, and it's like, I trust that this chair will, will hold me. And I sit down in the chair. Here, I'll do it right now, all right? I'm just going to grab this chair right here, all right? Mills, thanks. I prove, all right, it's still my faith in this chair. God bless you. Yes, sit. All right, I'll do a handstand, all right? No, I'm not going to do that. So like, but it's like the person saying, yeah, I believe that chair. I'm like, okay, bro, we'll sit. Well, man, I'm not really going to sit. I mean, that's just kind of, but I have faith in that chair. My faith is so intellectual that I don't even have to sit because my faith is just so, so awesome. I'm like, bro, sit in the chair. Like, show me your faith by putting your faith, faith into action. Well, no, I believe. And they start articulating. Well, I believe because, you know, steel, steel does this, and steel fashioned this way. I know these things. I have these things kind of understood. And this little, little brown fabric, this is like glue, all right? And this holds it together. And I can, I can give you all kinds of mental things. I'm like, bro, sit in the chair. Oh, I'm not going to sit in the chair, but I believe it can hold me. All right, well, you get the point. Here's the thing. Listen to me very closely. 
Intellectual assent to doctrine is not salvation. Listen to me very closely. Intellectual assent to doctrine is not salvation. Let me, let me run through a list of things that demons believe. All right, It's crazy. If you go back and you read the gospel, specifically the gospel of Mark, demons keep, keep like creeping up on Jesus and saying things about him that are true. Like go back and read the gospel of Mark and look at some of Jesus' interaction with people who are demonically possessed. Let, let me give you a rundown of some things that demons believe. Demons believe in the existence of God. James just said that here in, in James chapter 2, verse 19. Demons believe that God exists. You, you won't argue with the demon who's, who is going to think that God does not exist. Demons believe that Jesus is God's son. All right? In Mark chapter 3, Mark chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, Jesus is kind of hanging out. This, this demonic, demonically possessed guy um, comes and, and it gets before Jesus. And it says, whenever the demons saw Jesus, they fell down before him and began to cry out, that's the son of God. You're the son of God. This is what demons are declaring about Jesus. So they believe that Jesus is God's son. Demons also believe that Jesus is the judge of all creation. Again, in the book of Mark, chapter 5, Jesus has this interaction with a demon-possessed person. And, and the demon-possessed person looks, at, and he's worried that Jesus has showed up, and it's the time for his judgment. And in Mark chapter 5, one, you, the whole thing's in one through, verse 1 through 13, but this is what it says here, I believe, in verse um, 10. And crying out with a loud voice, the demon said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you by God, do not torment me. So the demon right here in Mark chapter 5 declares that Jesus is the son of the most high God and has authority to torment him in judgment forever. A demon believes this and declares this about Jesus. A demon also believes that they, they walk around and declare this in Acts chapter 16 verses 16 through 18. Paul is, is walking around, I believe it's Corinth, or, or, or Ephesus, and this um, girl that is possessed by a demon begins to follow Paul, uh, Paul around, and this is what, this is what she, clear, she declares in Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 18. This demon-possessed girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting. Listen, now here's what she's shouting. These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. So listen to me. James says here, intellectual facts about God are great. You need to know them. Doctrine is going to drive a lot of things in your life. You need to know truth. You need to be rooted in truth. These, these, these truths that are declared, even from the mouth of people who are demon-possessed, uh, just because they're spoken by someone who's demon-possessed doesn't make them any less true. All right? They're true. But the point is simply that intellectual assent to correct doctrine is not salvation. It's not salvation. And you guys have grown up in stinking the United States of America with Christmas being like one of our hallmark like holidays. I, I could probably go in anywhere in America 
Um, and most people I could ask, hey, who's Jesus's mother? Most people would be able to tell me Mary. Who's Jesus's father? Most people would, his earthly father, Joseph. Where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. Did Jesus, how did Jesus die? On a cross. But just because you know these, these intellectual kinds of things doesn't mean you have salvation because genuine faith involves not only, listen to me, not only love for the truth, but love for the one truth points to. Not just love of the truth, but love for the one that truth points to. It loves God and it loves others in tangible, practical ways. Demons, for all of their intellectual knowledge, listen to me, don't love Jesus. And demons, for all their intellectual knowledge, do not love and seek the best of those around them. They're self uh, they're, they're selfish, self-centered. They seek to torment, destroy, rob, and kill. When you go and look at them, they don't love Jesus. They know right things about him, but they don't love him, and they don't love those that Jesus loves. So mere intellectual assent to truth is not salvation. So not only is faith a part that, that doesn't have works, not only is it dead, not only is it demonic, but here's the last thing, all right? Here's the last thing, we're gonna be done. It's useless. It's useless, all right? It's useless. Um, look down at verse, verse 19. Or I mean, uh, verse 20. He says this. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Useless. And then he's going to give two examples of a live faith. Okay? Of a live, a live faith. Now, there's two truths, and we've kind of talked about them, okay, already. And the one is that the Bible is consistent from start to finish, that you're saved by grace through faith, all right? This is consistent inside of Scripture, starting all the way back um, starting all the way back in Genesis 15, when, when it begins to talk about Abraham. It says that in Genesis 15, verse 22, that Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, all right? That his belief and his faith was credited to him as righteousness. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, it says this, the righteous shall live by faith, by faith. Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Ephesians 2, 8, 8 and 9, for it is by grace that you have been saved by faith. This is not from works. It is the gift of God so that no man or woman can can both. You are saved by grace through faith. When it speaks about being righteous or just, in this sense, it's speaking of your position, what God has made you in Christ, okay? But there's another way that it'll talk about, about faith, not, not as justification of position, but as proof or the practical working out of that salvation. So we see this in places like Genesis chapter 22, and this is where James is going to. He says, Abraham had this faith that, that that made him righteous in Genesis 15, but the proof and the outworking, all right, the works that accompanied this faith, we see in Genesis chapter 2 when God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, take your son Isaac and sacrifice him. And, and, and Abraham gets Isaac, and he goes up Mount Horeb, and Isaac is like, hey, Dad, where, where's the ram? And Abraham's like, God will provide the ram. And he gets up there, and, and when he gets to the top, Abraham begins to bind Isaac and begins to put him on the altar. And Abraham is about to sacrifice, and God, God shows him and says, hey, don't touch him. I know now that you, that you fear me. All right? 
So his faith that was counted righteous all the way back in Genesis chapter 15 was proved by his actions in Genesis chapter 22. This is the point that, that James is making right here, that if you claim to have faith, you say you, say you have faith or whatever, but you don't, it doesn't produce anything in you. It doesn't transform your life. It is useless. And so he holds up Abraham and says, look what it did in Abraham. Look what it did in Abraham, that Abraham believed and it caused him to live this way. Look at Rahab. Rahab was this prostitute inside of the city of Jericho. She was not an Israelite, but she had heard about the Israelites. They had crossed the Red Sea. They had wandered inside of the wilderness, and now God was taking them into the promised land that he had promised, and the first city that they had to get through where where pagan Canaanites lived was the city of Jericho, and Rahab was a prostitute inside of that city who had a home inside of the wall of the city, which meant she, she was one of the gatekeepers of people that went in and out of the city, and she knew. And so the Israelite spies come to Jericho to, to, to spy things out. Rahab meets them, and, and listen to what Rahab says here in Joshua chapter 2, verse 11. Um, she's telling them, we've heard about you guys. We've heard about you, and we've heard about your God. And look, look at what she says in Joshua 2, 11. When we heard this, we lost heart. And everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord, your God, is the God of heaven above and earth below. And Rahab, faith was awakened in her. And so what did that faith propel her to do? She hid the spies. They came looking for them. They said, Rahab, where are the spies? She says, I don't know. I don't know. They've left. They've, they, they've gone that way. Maybe if you go that way, you, you can get them. And then she gets the spies and she says, listen, remember me when you come into this town, when your God brings you in, in into the promised land and you take this town, remember me and my family. And the spies say, you, you know, hang this, this scarlet yarn, wow, um, uh, outside your window. We take this city, we will spare you. We will spare you and your family. And that's what happened. The Israelites marched in. They took Jericho. They spared Rahab and her family. And listen, Rahab's grandson was, um, was Obed. And Obed was the grandfather of David. And David was the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus. Not only was Rahab saved, but she was woven. This, this, this pagan prostitute not only saved and redeemed and forgiven and brought into the family, but then woven into the very family line of the Messiah himself beautiful picture of redemption and his point is that their faith wasn't alone it worked itself out in what it transformed their life where your faith does not transform you it's useless point is a live faith produces a changed life of faith filled Alive faith does this. Not perfection, man, but it's progress. So what James here forces each of us to wrestle with is that question, what kind of faith do I have? What kind of faith do I have? Because alive faith... A live faith changes the whole picture. Works. Works 
are the evidence of that change here. They're not, they're not the root of it, all right? They're not the root. Faith is the root, all right? Don't get this backwards. Don't, don't walk out of here thinking that the gospel says, I better do so, be, so that I'll be loved. No, the gospel says, you are loved, so now do. It frees you, all right? You're rooted by faith in the person and work of you, that I can't do this thing on my own, I can't save myself, I can't be rich enough, moral enough, or religious enough, all right? I need something else. So Jesus steps in, you said, I want Jesus, and I climb in, and I hide behind Jesus, and Jesus is now in front of me. He gifts me his righteousness. He gets all of my sin, and when God looks at me now, he sees the perfection of Christ, that I am accepted and loved, not because of what I've done, or not because of what I can do, but because of my faith in what Jesus has done for me. That is the root, but the fruit that inevitably flows from that root is the works of a changed life. Of a changed life. Faith, faith bears fruit. Abraham believed God and was willing to sacrifice. Rahab believed God and was willing to risk. Alive, saving faith preceded, preceded, but was accompanied by action. Was accompanied by action. So verse 26, I'm going to read this and we're going to close. We'll get out of here. Verse 26 sums it up. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So what are the works of the saint? What are the works? See, sometimes we come in here and we want the list. All right, now give me the list. Like, give me, give me, the, give me the 12 things I need to make sure I do this week, all right? Um, James doesn't do that. James says, love God and love others. Love God with all your heart. And love, that's the works of the saint. What is, it, what is that going to look like for you this week? I don't know. Work it out. Talk with the Spirit. See who he brings into your life this week. But love God and love others. I heard a pastor say this week, if other people are only a means to an end, please quit calling yourself a Christian. Not one. And if there isn't even a mustard seed of love for God, please quit calling yourself a Christian. You're not one. Only faith in Jesus saves someone. And listen, he gladly and freely invites Anyone and everyone to believe, come to him, to believe in him, to repent of their sin, be accepted and redeemed and loved and, and enjoyed. And from that foundation of love and acceptance and joy in Christ to begin to be transformed little by little. All right, it's called progressive sanctification. Keyword progressive. All right, progressive, not perfection, but progress, not perfection, but a new direction. And sometimes you're falling to kind of walk this way, but I'm learning how to walk this way. And, and, and I'm growing and love for God and love for others is begin to drive me and transform me to live a certain way. This is what a life faith does. Okay, this is what a life faith does. All right, let me pray.